When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Hello out there in the great wide world. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. We have a little bit of a bumper show this week. It's uh, show number six, and we've got two lovely stories and a bit of flash fiction, just to lift the feeling at the end of the show. We're going to start with A Ring of Green Fire by Sean McMullen going on to a story called Rules to Win the Game by American Matthew Burnside, and finishing off with a flash fiction piece by Tricia Glock. So, let's get started. A Ring of Green Fire was written by Sean McMullen. Sean lives in Melbourne, Australia, but he's published mostly in the US and Europe. He's written so much, 20 books, 80 stories, he's won 15 awards, it just goes on and on. The man is so impressive. He works with large scientific computers in his day job, has a PhD in medieval fantasy literature, and he's a karate instructor at the Melbourne University Club. He has so much to offer. He's done so many interesting things. Do click over to his website and have a look. It's read for you by Colin Clues, a musician and writer living in the UK. He gives such an amazing feeling to this story. I was smiling all the way through. Such a dry sense of humour and yet so sensitive. You can read his biog on the Triple F website. I'm sure you'll be as amused reading it as I was writing it. So, here's the story, everyone. A Ring of Green Fire by Sean McMullen As I was travelling through Westbury Forest... I met a man with a ring of green fire around his penis, Avanzor's visitor said casually. The poet-physician looked up at his friend and stroked his beard, then gazed wistfully across to the partially built minaret of Caliph al-Mansur's huge mosque. Such a wonder, sighed Avanzor, then turned to his visitor and raised an eyebrow. I suppose you did not bring him here for this poor physician and poet-turned-bureaucrat to examine. His friend glanced away and seemed troubled. Alas, it was not possible. Such a pity. It may be an honour to be entrusted with the completion of this great mosque of Ishibilia, but I miss the rider world. Is England really such a cold, rain-swept place? When I was there, yes. 
What of your patient? Was he a traveller from even more exotic regions? Not at all. Yet the story of his curse is fascinating. Avanzor clapped his hands. Honey pastries and ripe fruit were brought in by a servant and placed before them. My friend, show kindness to a captive of the Caliph's goodwill and tell me this magical story. There was no magic, Avanzor, nor was the curse any more than an exotic disease. Still, the story will afford you an hour's wonder. How to begin? Affliction with the green fire was growing common in the Midlands of England in the Christian year of 1188. The man in Westbury Forest was a tinker. I saw that from his pack. He approached a toll bridge where I was resting in the dim light of late evening, and he drew his cloak tightly about himself as he came near. His name was Watkin. He was a small, thin, but very energetic man, a little over thirty years of age. I introduced myself as a physician, and offered him the protection of my five men-at-arms while we camped for the night. He was glad to accept, as the forest was full of outlaws, and we had also rigged a shelter against the rain. As we ate the night's meal, I raised the subject of illness with him. "'You have an affliction. I can tell that,' I said. He made no reply, yet his face was sad. He shaved slivers of cheese from a rind with his knife, but did not eat them. "'Your affliction is distressing, but without pain,' I continued. "'I have learned to read the signs of distress in sick people.' He tossed the rind into the fire and wiped his knife on a crust. "'You have never seen the like of my complaint,' he said miserably. "'Nobody can help me. I went to the physicians of the church, and they said that I was possessed by a devil. They wanted to torture me till it was driven out, but I'd have none of that. I broke free and ran. I run very fast. Wise of you, but there are other ways. I'm afeard of witchcraft, too. I'm no sorcerer. I'm a physician who has studied under some of the greatest Moorish and Jewish masters of the day, including Maimonides himself. Who is Maimonides? Ah, a great Jewish teacher and man of medicine. He is a court physician to the great Saladin. Saladin, so you have Moorish training. Why, yes, I went to the Holy Land with the crusade of 1147. I was badly wounded, then captured. The enemy physicians tended me so well that I resolved to learn their ways. You place no faith in torture to rid a man of demons? Oh, no, I have been trained in far more civilized means. Then I'll show you. No, wait. Let me examine you first. I wager that I can tell your affliction in moments. I felt the glance beneath his jaw, looked into his eyes in the firelight, and sniffed his breath. He was in good health, I could see that at once, yet I had to make a show of skill to gain his trust. He did not realize that I have acute vision at a distance, and had noticed a faint green glow through the cloth of his trews before he wrapped himself in his cloak. You have a circlet of green fire about your penis, I announced calmly. It has been slowly moving higher, and in its wake your skin has lost all feeling. He gasped, then looked down to see if his glow was showing, which it was not. Truly a man of great medical arts, he said in awe. What are your fees? I am but a poor tinker, yet I'd give anything to be rid of the fire and numbness. I laughed disarmingly. I have yet to meet a rich tinker, but do not worry. Your earnings for the past week will suffice. Open your robes, lower your trues, and let me see your affliction. His ring was brighter than any others I had seen, and had moved so far up the shaft that it was almost at the base and glowed through his pubic hair. My companions looked up from their meal in surprise. "'Can you break this spell?' Watkin babbled eagerly. "'Have you seen the like before?' "'Ah, yes, and I have had great success where all others have failed.' He sighed with relief. "'So you have secret incantations and filters, perhaps?' "'I have those, but they are for later. The real mode of breaking a spell is to learn the circumstance of its casting in the fullest detail possible.' An honest, truthful account of the casting weakens the grip of the devil, who is behind all curses and spells. One lie, one slight deviation from the truth, however, and his grip is strengthened. How did you acquire your ring, Watkin? 
It appeared a month ago after I bedded my wife, and each time that I enjoy her it moves a little higher. Stop, stop, I laughed. Three lies within one breath. Watkin, you will have to do better than that. The ring of green fire begins at the tip of one's member and moves higher only when you bed a woman for the first time. It also becomes brighter as time passes. In women the glow is all internal, yet there is also numbness and other such effects that increase with time and new lovers. I would say that you acquired it around May last year, and since then you have mounted eight dozen women. As to being married, no, not to you. Am I wrong? He slowly shook his head and stared at his boots. To my shame, no. Then tell the truth, however reproachful your conduct has been. It would burn the ears of a good Christian. But what can I am not a Christian? He gaped at me. When I was in the Holy Land, I adopted more than the medical scholarship of Islam. Now tell me of how you were first snared by the ring, and tell the truth. It was in a village called Delmi, to the south near the coast. I arrived there early one afternoon during the May festival. The villagers were celebrating the victory of summer over winter with feasting, May carols and dancing. Strangers were welcome, especially an honest tinker like myself. For a time I sampled the tartlets, manchettes, fried figs and ales, then I turned my thoughts to a companion for a little frolic. I had been travelling for a long time. I was lonely. It was spring. I am not too old to know the needs and urgings of the flesh, Watkin. Go on. It seemed easy pickings. Many of the young folk of the village were dancing and fondling most intimately, raising my hopes of a quick and easy conquest. Alas, no girl would spare me the deepest smile. It seemed there were no girls unpaired at all. After so long tramping the road, I was lonely, and with so many pairs of lovers cavorting before me, I was quite beside myself to be a part of it. At last I saw one girl who was unpaired, a big-boned, hairy-armed wench with a face that only a beard could have improved. She was alone, tending the tables, and she smiled broadly whenever I came near. At first it seemed worse to mount her than no wench at all, yet the fire of spring burned within me. I made up my mind, approached her, whispered words of compliment, then with unseemly haste did I shepherd her away from the fair, more in shame of being seen with her than in shame of the act to come. I chose a place among the bushes behind a broad oak. I, I could not bear to look at her. I just bent her over a rack of poles and flung her skirts up. He paused for a long drink from the crock. And you did the deed with her? I prompted. Ah, yes, Master Physician. And she was a virgin, wouldn't you know it? Ah, it was wearisome work, yet I am a diligent tradesman. To the beat of the distant village band I placed my rivet and began tapping. At last I was spent. I eased back as she stood panting. Then I slipped away as if I had been a wood sprite vanishing into the air, lest she have thoughts about wedding me. I skirted the village, took up my pack, and trotted briskly away. By evening I was five leagues gone and some way contented. My hammer had been well worked. In fact, he even felt a little numb, so hard had I clinked the pan. Or so I thought. Imagine my alarm when I unlaced a piss and saw a ring of cold, faint green fire encircling his head. The girl was a virgin, you say? Indeed, no doubt of it. I have initiated many. Alas, she passed this cold glow to me, and soon I noticed that as I worked the pots of the good wives and maids on my travels, the ring would move a little further up each time. Where it had been, the feeling that his lust reward was no more. But surely the women you have bedded since have noticed your green glow. Ah, no, master. You are obviously not a tradesman. We visit houses and cottages during the day, when the men folk are in the fields and their women are at home alone. Most times there will be a sly look or even a saucy suggestion. Then we will be coupled on the hearthrug in the light of day. Since the ring was slipped upon me, I have shared the glow to, oh, ninety-five women, mostly low-born, though some were of no mean rank.
He nudged me, winking suavely. Master, if foolish knights would do no better than fight and drink, well, someone must plant the seeds of future knights. One last question, Watkin. Could you write down the names and villages of all the women that you have bedded since the stout maid gave you the green fire? Alas, master, I cannot write, yet I could recite the names of all. When I lie alone at night, I like to recall each wench that I have ever mounted and set a name against a star, but of late the number of stars has grown insufficient. Since the stout virgin of Delmy there have been, now let me think, one hundred and five, yes. Ah, but it is becoming difficult now, as so much of my hammer has no feeling. Without any warning I seized his wrist and twisted his arm hard behind his back. He cried out in surprise and pain as I shouted, A firebrand! A firebrand! Quickly! My men-at-arms jumped to their feet at once, but Watkin tumbled in mid-air, twisted his arm free of my grip and darted for the woods with the speed of a startled hind. Worse luck for him, the sentry had been alert for just such a flight. His hand-axe went spinning flat after him, tangled his legs, and sent him sprawling in the mud with a cry of pain. We soon had him in hand and dragged him back to the fire. A good throw, Sir Philip, I said, as they held him down, and I tended the gashes and cuts in Watkins' legs. The great tendon is severed in his right leg. He will never again run from cuckolded husbands with such speed. Watkins' moaning suddenly died away as he realized something else was not as it seemed. Beneath their shabby robes my men-at-arms were well-dressed warriors with fine weapons. They stood before us glaring, their eyes sparkling with fury in the firelight. What? Who are you? the tinker stammered. One of the men began to unlace, and the others followed his example. A moment later the light of five rings of green fire glowed steadily from their loins. "'Lied! You lied to me!' gasped Watkin. "'Lied, Watkin? I am indeed a physician, and a breaker of curses, and my faith is the way of Islam. Then who are these men?' "'You may call this man Sir Robert,' I said, as he brought a coil of rope to tie the tinker's hands. "'This fine burly warrior is Sir Peter, and Sir Philip was the sentry who brought you down.' Sir Charles is the blond man, and Sir Douglas has the black beard, and is scowling as if he would cheerfully cut your heart out. You may call me William. Those are not your real names, he said fearfully. Those names will suffice for you, false or not. Speaking for myself, I really am an Englishman, and although I do have an Islamic name now, I was christened William when I was born. I have returned to England at the request of Sir Peter here. A Christian physician could well have had us denounced or burned for demonic possession, Sir Peter explained. Some folk afflicted by the green fire have already suffered such a fate. This infidel, who is also my friend, can be trusted not to do that. On your feet now! The nobles tied him spread-eagled in the rain between two trees. False physician! You betrayed me! wailed Watkin. And how many women did you betray by passing the green fire on to them? I asked. No, no! I have ceased to spread the green fire! he cried. Look in my pack! You certainly have, I agreed, as I rummaged through his goods. Just look at these knick-knacks. All manner of little presences might please a wench and entice her into bed. Aromatic oils and scents, and, and less savoury items. There it was, in his pack, the cursed device. I sat back and examined the sheath while my companions cheerily tormented Watkin with what was to come. With such a plague as the green fire to be caught from a casual dalliance, it was only a matter of time before these sheaths of sheep-cut became popular. Still, that was not my concern. Watkin was the man I had been seeking, the Alpha Firebrand, the Butterfly King. The plague of green fire was about to end, and he would play a role. I stood up. Sir Douglas had just proposed a crew surgical operation to rid Watkin of his green fire, and the others were roaring their approval. Stop, stop, I shouted, rushing forward to seize Sir Peter's arm. 
"'My good lords, this one is not to be killed.' "'But he's the one who began it all!' exclaimed Sir Peter, so hot with anger that the rain steamed from his face. "'Precisely. Other firebrands may be killed for spreading the green glow, but this one might well be used for a cure.' Their hard, vengeful stares were at once softened by amazement and hope. Even revenge took second place to removing the glowing green shackle from their manhood. Watkin was bound, gagged and bagged, then taken to Sir Peter's castle some seventy miles away. The journey was done in a single stretch with no sleep, and even meals were had in the saddle. It rained for most of the way. Castle was no great wonder. It was a mean, low fortification of rammed earth, logs and stone blocks from ancient Roman ruins. The thatch and log roofs leaked, and it rained most of the time I was there. Although surly at first, Watkin became wonderfully cooperative after a single touch of the torturer's red-hot iron. We wrote down the details of his hundred and five seductions, and in the weeks that followed, established that only sixty-two of the infected women had survived beatings by their husbands and attempts at exorcism by religious healers. Ten had escaped ensnarement by the green ring since he'd begun to use his sheep-gut armour. In the months past, we had travelled far and wide killing firebrands who had spread the green fire, and thanks to the fire, their trails were easy to follow. With Watkins safely in chains, we now visited Delmy, the village from where he had borne the green fire to torment the world. The stout virgin that Watkin had seduced was named Gerald, but while she was indeed not comely, she was skilled with herbal cures, and was a surpassing good cook. Her mother was buried nearby. The woman had once lived alone in a forest some way up the coast, and was reputed to have been a witch. Cornish brigands had raided the area and seized her, and their leader had ravished her until she was some months swelling with his child. He had then taken her out to sea, and cast her overboard to drown, yet she lived to struggle ashore and be found by the villagers of Delmy. The village midwife had said she treated herself with a glowing green paste to ease the pain of birth. It was a difficult delivery, as Gerald was a very big baby for such a small mother as she was. The witch had died of the stresses of birth, and cursing her ravager. Sir Peter assembled a squad of men while I went with Sir Philip to locate the witch's house, a ransacked shell by now. We exhumed the witch's bones and reburied them in the overgrown garden of her old home. In the meantime, Sir Peter had attacked and annihilated the brigand stronghold, avenging the witch after eighteen years. Every one of his fighting men had the ring of green fire, and was frantic for revenge against anyone connected with it. On the evening that we returned to Sir Peter's castle, I spoke with him in his dining hall. Rain dripped from the roof beams as we sat before the fire. "'Clever work, finding the first firebrand of the green ring,' he said to me. Why didn't you tell us that we were on such a quest? If I had told that I wanted a man of such and such description, you would have tortured dozens into confessing to be him. Better take you on a vendetta against all firebrands and do the questioning myself. Well, then, what good came of it? We avenged the witch, and yet her magical ring still glows on my gronic, and the ring on Watkin the Tinker is still bright enough to light his way on a moonless night. What sort of a sorcerer are you? I am a physician, not a sorcerer. Magic does not exist, only illness in all its guises. The full cure for the ring of green fire is close. I have made progress. What kind of progress? I returned the witch's bones to her garden and reburied them there. A month has passed since then, so the aura from her bones will have permeated the roots of her herbs and be taken up into the leaves. Soon I shall return to her grave and harvest some leaves to grind into a paste. Will that be enough? Leaves? There is more, Sir Peter, much more. Even though she is dead, she is trying to teach us something of the new notion of chivalry. It's new to you English, at least. Us Saracenic scholars have taught it for years. That's why we employed you, damn it! And your faith in me is not misplaced. 
I can see some kind of symbolism of pain being avenged while its resulting sorrow still lives on. The witch wanted you to do more than just avenge her. Well, what did she damn well want? Shouted Sir Peter, pounding the table so hard with his goblet that a gemstone fell out of the silver filigree. Patience, patience! I dare not tell you everything yet. Sir Peter had a mistress as well as his wife, and it was this woman that Watkin had bedded one afternoon in the summer past. The noble had argued with her a little earlier, and she felt lonely and neglected. Watkin had arrived and cleverly spoke in a cultivated voice, as if by accident. Then he hinted that he himself was a noble on some secret mission, and so he won her trust and bedded her. Understandably, Sir Peter was all for impaling Watkin on a stake at the castle gate till the crows pecked his bones clean, but I restrained him. Why do you have such sympathy for the little wretch? Asked Sir Philip the next morning as we squelched our way through the muddy grounds of the castle, holding sodden cloaks up against the rain. We were on our way to visit the tinker. Sympathy? I have no sympathy for Watkin, but I do have a use for him. The talk is that you are sorry for him. Sorry? Me? Not likely. I once suffered because of his kind. I was a young merchant scribe in love with my master's daughter. Although she cared for me, our courtship was slow. I did not have skill with the words and gestures of seduction. My master took her on a journey to Normandy. He had trade business there. She met one such as Watkin, but this youth was a noble. He charmed her with talk as sweet as a nightingale's song, and settled upon her as softly as a butterfly. When she returned to England, she grew round with child and was desolate with remorse. I petitioned to marry her, and the merchant consented. Yet even then I was aflame with rage. I travelled to Normandy and sought out her seducer. Although a mere scribe, I was skilled with the use of short swords. I killed a guard and wounded several more, but the butterfly nobleman escaped, and I was wounded. I became a fugitive and outlaw. I could never return to my young wife. She gave birth some months later, then flung herself from a cliff and was drowned in the sea. When did all this take place? Your Christian year of eleven hundred and fifty. But that was three years after the Crusade of eleven hundred and forty-seven. Certainly. With a history like mine, would you let the truth be known? I began working aboard merchant ships, as they are always in need of people who could write. After five years, I had earned enough silver and learned sufficient Arabic to settle in the Zangid Sultanate and study medicine. I had an impressive wound, so I made up that tale of being on the Crusade. Now you know my background, Sir Philip. Please preserve my secret, yet reassure your folk about my intentions. A butterfly killed my sweetheart, and Watkin is another such butterfly. But why do you stay Sir Peter's hand? As I said, Watkin has his uses. Although a mere tinker, he is magnificent, the ultimate seducer. He can affect the voices and manners of all types of people, from nobles to plowmen. His trews have a double strap so that he can lower them to his knees for a dalliance. Yet they stay high enough for him to run unencumbered from an outraged husband. He is a master of escape and could run like the wind until your axe severed his hamstring. He cleans his teeth with soft bark. He washes, and he scents himself with aromatic oils. His trade is tinking, yet even that takes him roving to meet an endless bevy of women. We reach the dungeon, a squat blockhouse of stone with a log roof and narrow slits for windows. I made to enter, but Sir Philip barred my way. I'm with Sir Peter. I'm for killing the little rat. He declared. He, he seduced a maid on intimate terms with your senchal, and your senchal passed the fire onto his wife, who was already your secret lover. If the green fire has done anything, it has traced out a fine trail of humpery bumpery at all stations of society. So what are you saying? Are we no better than Watkin? I'm saying you can learn from Watkin. In spite of being a short, scrawny, low-born tinker, he charms greatly. He preys upon the most vulnerable of women. True, 
but were you English noblemen to clean your teeth, change your clothing at least weekly, and take care to give the ladies little compliments instead of kicks, curses, and belches, why the likes of Watkin would have no market for their charms. He is poor, but it costs him nothing to speak charmingly and wash. If you did the same, you would still be rich and powerful as well. Who would then choose Watkin over you? A hot iron can wound Watkin's type, but with good manners and clean fingernails you can hurt them a lot more. You English are adopting our Saracenic cooking, mathematics, and music. Why not our chivalry as well? Sir Philip glared at me from under his cloak, but he was obviously thinking, There is a lot of merit in what you say, but it is hard to think chivalrous thoughts with a ring of green fire about my chronic. What can I do about that? The tinker took a curse upon himself when he bundled into the witch's daughter. He then dispersed that curse to nearly every woman he seduced in his travels, and hence to all their lovers. That has formed quite an avenging army. And we did avenge her. Yes, but there's more to it than that, so the glow remains. The green fire is a tool to force us to do certain tasks, and even teach us about the ways of men and women. We entered the dungeon, where the tinker was practising walking with a crutch, and in good spirits. Have you caught the dummy witch? he asked. We found her grave and exhumed it. She's naught but bones after these eighteen years. Eighteen years? Bones? She was as well fleshed as a prize sow when I mounted her the May before last. That was her daughter. The witch herself died in childbirth, but her daughter unknowingly carried a curse. You turned that curse loose upon the world. Gerald was raised by a peasant family, and has come to be a fine cook. I tasted her food. It was fine fare for a peasant table. She wants for naught but a husband. She's plain of face and is built as solidly as Sir Peter, yet for all that she's a kindly girl. Watkins sneered. Why are you telling me about her? I'd never touch her again. She's as ugly as a goat's backside. She was quite taken by you, Watkin, and she is very concerned that you were imprisoned here. Still, you are more fortunate than the brigand who raped her mother. Sir Peter caught him, did you know? He was a great slab of a man, massive rather than fat, full of life and defiance, even eighteen years after the deed that caused all this. He was confident that we would not kill him, because he knew where sundry hordes of gold and silver loot lay buried. Sir Peter had him taken to the graveside of his victim, and there his gronick was sliced from between his legs, and rammed down his windpipe so that he choked on it and died most horribly. Those of his men as were watching quickly babbled the location of hordes of gold and plate and jewellery, yet none heeded them. Sir Peter had to kill them with the same weapon that killed Gerald's mother. Watkin was deathly pale by now, and had slumped against the wall. Mother of God, but why? He was a link in the chain that ignited the green fire. You are another link. Me? But, but... You bedded Sir Peter's mistress. That alone should have you in fear for your life. But you also passed the fire to her. The tinker cowered, but said no more. Sir Philip lurked in the shadows, smirking at his discomfort. I need tears of pity that have been wept for you and no other. In all the world, Watkin, would anyone weep for you? Many regard me as comely. Someone must weep for you, Watkin. Your flesh is about to hiss with the touch of the red iron. No, as God is merciful, no. Take my pack. Sell me into slavery. I'll do anything. For the final ingredient to quench the ring of green fire, you will be able to choose between death and a less daunting fate. But for now, you will be tortured. I require that it be done, Watkin. And believe me, there are thousands of men and women who would fight to the death for the pleasure of holding the glowing iron to you. You have often been bold. Now you must learn to be brave. Once we were well away from the dungeon and Watkin's hysterical pleading, Sir Philip took me by the arm. That brigand was killed in a battle by one of Sir Peter's archers. It was a shaft through his skull. He died at once. True. 
Then what was that story about choking him on his own chronic? Morkin has the attention span of a butterfly. I meant to focus his mind. To what end? That is between myself and Allah. Rest assured, however, that Watkin will be tortured. And will you savour his screams with the rest of us? Oh no, I shall be hard at work preparing certain ingredients to quench the ring of green fire. Lord Physician, I don't follow. You will never follow, Sir Philip. But your ring of green fire shall be quenched. Rely on my word for that. By the time I had left Sir Peter's castle for Delmy, Watkin had faced the first of the silent hooded men that were to torment him. Thousands gathered outside the castle to hear his screams, but these did not last. After he was blinded, the tendons at the source of his voice were cut. This produced such a riot outside that all Watkin's subsequent tortures had to be on public display. As I rode off for Delmy, hot irons were being applied to the soles of his feet by the second torturer, Sir Douglas, while Sir Philip held up a cloak to keep the rain from cooling the red-hot metal. I returned after three days, bringing Gerald with me. Watkin was, of course, the only lover she had ever known, so he was a lot more special to her than the other way about. She was blind to his disfigurements, and she made heartfelt pleas for her feckless tinker. It was an impressive sight, for even on her knees she was taller than Sir Peter. I stood by and collected her tears on a small cloth. At a nod from me, Sir Peter relented, on the condition that Watkin marry her, and that he never leave the village of Delmy under pain of death by torture. Watkin could only nod his head by way of agreement. Now Gerald wept tears of joy, and I wiped these from her face as well. A great marriage feast was held, and a good many folk with the ring of green fire were brought in to participate. Before Sir Peter's eyes I ground the cloth with its tears into paste, then added cuttings of herbs taken from the witch's garden. The food at the feast was wonderful village fare, and to this I added my mixture. All ate heartily, and by the evening the green fire was gone from every afflicted man and woman at the feast. There were, well, unseemly celebrations in spite of the rain, but that was only to be expected. The following day I called upon Sir Peter. Now that the curse is broken, a simple remedy can be used to quench the green fire and all others who still have it, I told him. I have trained several clerks and midwives in its preparation already, and they will train more. Soon the green fire will be no more, so my work here is done. Sir Peter embraced me so strongly that I heard the joints of my spine pop. I was the physician who had returned the feeling to his penis, and he was brimming with gratitude. You must have a reward, honours. You have done more good for this land than words can say. There is my agreed fee, of course. That a mere trifle. Here's twice your fee. He tossed me a bag of gold. Now, my lord physician, if you could but renounce the faith of Islam, you could also be given great rank. My faith is Islam. Please respect that, and rank does not interest me. I am a physician, so although I found it an honour to treat caliphs and kings, I do not aspire to their thrones. Then treat a king you will. Our king Henry lies sick at Chinon, a town in his French provinces. I am his trusted adviser. I'll recommend you to him. I'll recommend you in the very highest words of praise. I would be honoured to treat your king, Sir Peter. Avanzor gazed at the fountain in the centre of the courtyard for some moments before turning back to his guest. The constant rain, the glowing green fire, all the strange horrors of his visitor's tale slowly retreated before the warm Spanish sunshine. So the girl's tears broke the curse, he said. No, my other remedy would have worked by itself. Then you could have stopped the green fire months earlier. Why the charade? The visitor paused to select a ripe fig, frowning as if troubled. I was Watkins' first torturer. Avonsor gasped with surprise. Yes, I blinded him to Gerald's face, and I silenced his voice that he might never abuse her. 
I see. You made him a match for her and no other. I did more than that. The ring of green fire was a type of purgative. It flushed out those men with great skill in coldly manoeuvring women into bed. Watkin was not the only firebrand. We discovered nearly two dozen men, and a few women too, who had hundreds of seductions behind them. They are all dead now, save for Watkin. Many other diseases are spread by loveless lust of Watkin's kind. We culled in the interest of good health. Avanzor considered this. True, too much of any skill can be dangerous. Perhaps the witch did some good after all. The witch was no witch, and there was no curse. She was my dead wife's daughter, sired by a butterfly, and born just before her mother cast herself into the ocean. Gerald was my step-granddaughter, and even though she and her mother were no flesh and blood of mine, I loved them as my own. I provided for them, and visited them every few years. Ah, yes, now it all makes sense. The green fire was a medicine to deaden the pain of childbirth. Your stepdaughter died before she could give the antidote to herself and her baby. The fire escaped when Watkin mounted Gerald. The visitor nodded. Avanzor stood up slowly and looked across to the delicate tracery and interlaced arches of the partly built minaret. He glanced at a nearby sundial. It is time for my daily inspection of the minaret, he said, with his back to his guest. Then he turned. But first I must reproach you for mutilating in the name of medicine. The guest remained calm, as if expecting the outburst. Yet he did not meet Avanzor's eyes. No, not in the name of medicine. I disfigured Watkin to have my step-granddaughter married and happy. She has a lame, blind, mute tinker who is nevertheless the prince of seducers, and she has him all to herself. He will be grateful for all she does for him until the day he dies. Yes, it was evil of me, but perhaps good has come of it. Watkin's wings have been clipped, but at least he has his life. Avanzor sat down and found himself. But what of my original question? You have not yet explained why you took so long to release your cure for the green fire. Surely it was not just to mark and slay the promiscuous. You are right, Avanzor, as usual. I withheld the cure to increase his worth. That increased my reward in turn. Reward? To treat King Henry? It must have been of little comfort to you. I learned recently that he died barely a fortnight after midsummer. Precisely, the visitor agreed solemnly, and Avanzor felt a sudden chill in spite of the bright sunshine. As a teenage prince in Normandy, he seduced my sweetheart. I spent a lifetime hating that royal butterfly, yet it was the accidental spread of the green fire that gave me a chance to get past his guards. Gerald is his granddaughter, yes, and Watkin unknowingly married to a princess. He reached into his robes and took out a folded parchment, which he placed on the tray beside the pastries. This details a cure for the mould that causes the ring of green fire, he said as he stood up. Avanzor unfolded the parchment, read it slowly. Finally he nodded and looked up at his guest in silence. Well, are you not going to censure me for killing a king? To what end? Avanzor replied wearily. You always have the best of reasons for your behaviour. Once more you are wrong, replied the visitor, but this time without his mask of smug composure. He sat down heavily, tears running into his beard. Avanzor sat forward. What is wrong? What did I say? I killed under the guise of healing, he sobbed, suddenly looking much older. I was so intent on striking King Henry that I destroyed my integrity as a physician to do it. Avanzor, I spent four decades rebuilding my life after what he did. I became one of the greatest physicians in all Islam. Then I visited him as a physician and defiled my healing hands to murder him. I was so obsessed by the chase that I ignored the outcome. 
He stood slowly and shuffled across to the fountain with Avanzor following. The poet put a hand on his shoulder as he washed his face. Accepting that you have done evil is a step towards atoning for it, my friend. Stay here for a while. Rest and talk with Avanzor, your friend and fellow physician. No, no, I am sincere in my remorse. You always say that about me, that I am too sincere for my own good. Have you not noticed that since I have arrived I have never been able to meet your eyes for more than a moment? Whenever I meet a fellow physician I am shamed to remember that I have murdered, that I have to hang my head. Ah, but soon I shall go to where I shall meet no other physicians, where I can shout the truth of how I murdered King Henry to the empty deserts of Africa. First I shall sign my worldly goods to you, then I shall travel along the salt road to the barren granite mountains of Agadez, to the marshy shores of Lake Tegad. You cannot be serious. The loss of your skills would be a crime in itself. My skills will not be lost to the sick in the great desert of Africa. Meantime, use my fortune to trade needy students, and to foster the arts of healing in whatever way you will. And should any woman come to you complaining of numbness within, or any man disrobed to reveal a ring of green fire about his penis, well, now you have the cure. But this is terrible. Your very words show you to be good of heart. Please stay. Now the visitor held him by both arms and looked fleetingly into his eyes. If I agreed to stay, you would probably despise me in the depths of your heart. Come now, let us find a scribe. I have much wealth to make over to you. Later that afternoon, when his guest had departed, Avanzor toured the partly completed minaret with Ali Algramari, his architect. As the sun's disk shimmered near the horizon, they gazed out across the capital of Al-Andalus. It is safe for now said Avanzor, but one day a green fire may come to blight this fair city. Is it a weapon? the architect asked with mild interest. Is it like Greek fire? It is English fire, replied Avanzor. Ha! It must be fierce indeed to burn in spite of their rain, the architect laughed. What is its fuel? Avanzor fingered the scrap of folded parchment for reassurance. Neglect and hatred, he said softly. The architect pondered this for a moment running his hand along the newly laid brickwork. A cheap and plentiful fuel, he replied at last, and Avanzor nodded. Ah, oh, the dry humour. It was brilliant. I really enjoyed that. So, let's move on to our second story for the day. It is a little bit of a darker story. In fact, when I first read it, I wondered if this shouldn't actually go on our horror podcast, so be warned, it's not a comfortable story. It is, however, really well written. It's called Rules to Win the Game, and it was written by Matthew Burnside. Matthew is the author of four chapbooks, and his work has appeared in so many different publications I can't possibly read them all. Um, he's currently hard at work expanding this story into a full-length novel, which I think I would be very interested to read. He was born and is originally from Texas, and he really loves choose-your-own-adventure books. Do you remember those? Where you read the story and then you have to choose at the end of the page where you're going to go next. And depending on what you choose, the story fits itself around your choices. Brilliant things. There's lots of information about Matthew. Again, you can look at all of it on our Triple F website. But the one thing I really love is he has a half-dachshund, half-chihuahua named Tinna, short for Tintinabulation, which is a fantastic word. Uh, I leave it up to you and Auntie Google to find out what it means. 
And of course, you can find out more about Matthew by clicking on his link. It's read for you by Tim Moroni. Tim has an endless fascination with ideas and invention, the things that keep life spicy and interesting. He loves learning new things like podcasting. He's been on four of the seven continents and has seen some of the wonders of our Earth. He was in the Navy, which is how he's managed to go to all those different continents, and he's served on five different submarines. Not too bad for a guy from a small town in north-central Florida. He also, by the way, does a fantastic job of narrating this story. Buckle up. It's not a comfortable listen, but it is definitely well worth it. Please enjoy Rules to Win the Game by Matthew Burnside. Rules to Win the Game by Matthew Burnside It's a hard world for little things, the night of the hunter. The game began around the time we discovered monsters were real. Theo, our eldest brother, started it the day he came into the center of the living room and declared he was no longer Theo, but the Noir. Of course, none of us had any idea what it meant, but we would learn in the coming weeks that it involved him wearing a long, musty trench coat two sizes too big. It smelled like a bingo parlor and a crushed hat with a feather gliding out of the top that would catch the kitchen light and shiver silvery, like a fish leaping out of water tickled by the sun. Then he would hang around in corners all afternoon, smoking rolled paper, while talking in a strange grown-up language none of us could translate. You're barking up the wrong tree, toots. Or, sorry, Dulces, but I don't know who that is, he would say, shrugging puffing imaginary fumes whenever little Amelia would address him by the name of his old identity. The more I think about it, the more I suspect Theo might have known about the existence of monsters long before any of us. The rules were never formally discussed, but in time we all had an implicit understanding of the game. Rule. Everything is the game. Everyone is a player, whether they know it or not. Amelia got her first fifty points when she died and was reborn the zombie. She began shambling, lagging one foot and slurring her speech. She would sit on the sofa eating a bowl of brains in the morning, her shredded pink bunny Pogo Rex tucked tight between her kneecaps, hemorrhaging clumps of cotton, his head dangling by a string. Not long after that, Big Little Ray got his first points by donning a green hoodie with half-cut paper plates duct-taped to the back and colored to look like scaly bumps. He announced he was the crocodile, warned us to avoid the floor or risk having our feet snacked on, or, God forbid, our bodies devoured entirely. He would slither around, dragging his enormous belly across the carpet, snapping at toes that weren't high enough off the ground, a makeshift snout wrapped around his jaw with drag teeth and two gaping cardboard cutout nostrils. Theo would ring a bell, and that would be our cue to seek higher ground. Sure, we all hated having to elevate ourselves pinned on tiny islands of furniture, but that was his rule, and there was no way around it. Later we would learn the trick of tossing down potato chips, which allowed us to shuffle by while Ray was busy chomping on the bait. We would all use that one to get around the house. Ben eventually caved in, too. He was the oldest next to Theo. He knotted up his greasy hair with chopsticks, strapped a broken broom on his back, and began bowing to everyone, 
and meditating on that linoleum countertop all day. He called himself the Samurai. Amelia didn't know what that meant, but it made her laugh to see him battling the crocodile through the swampish corridors of the house, yapping gibberish and waving his splintered sword like a kung fu cartoon. I think he was secretly Amelia's favorite. When he would give her a paper lotus, she would blush three shades of pink and slur, Thank you. Everyone had their points except for me, until the Sunday Theo slid up beside me and ignited that conversation. Got a light? he asked, a toothpick stabbed between his teeth. After handing him some invisible matches, he rattled the box that wasn't there and shot me a suspicious look. Say, what's your name, little fella? Of course, I couldn't think of anything flashy. I'm not so creative. What you have is the look of a gunfighter, the Wild West. He was trying his best to help me out, you see, to get me into the game. Tough guy, eh? Thanks for the tender, kid. Twenty points for your troubles, he said, and then winking. Got my eye on you, Mac. Then he leaped over the crocodile who was napping on the mattress in the middle of the floor, drizzling croc slobber on the zombie's leg. She could get away with sleeping so close because she was already dead and her rotting skin was unsavory to the crocodile's reptilian palate. The noir was still sharply eyeing me from a corner when we both heard the front door creak and the sinister jangling of keys and we knew the Emperor of Black Rainbows was home for the day. Rule. The game is secret. The Emperor is never to know of its existence. Part dragon, part vampire, part troll. The Emperor was the most evil monster in our tiny kingdom and wore the faith of a man as a clever disguise. He was always choosing a subject and taking him back to the lair, what we call the peeling tin shed in our backyard with the hissing black light bulb, doing all kinds of mad scientist stuff in there. He'd come in and gather us up and choose one, just one, for the night. Then we'd watch him lead away our unlucky sibling with his mustard-yellow fingernailed hand. It was a sinister kind of lottery. We all knew what would happen next, because we'd all won at some time or another. He'd give you the black rainbow punch, a therapy medicine in an amber jar that always stayed full, and you'd be out cold. When you woke up the next morning, you'd be missing something. Chunk of heart, lump of lung, half a stomach, quarter brain lobe. You never really knew what, and that's what made it so scary. You might feel your heart ticking and never suspect it was gone forever, swimming in some coffee can on a wobbly shelf in the lair. You could feel something, though. It hurt in the strangest places, embarrassing places, and you knew it was pain, but only the slightest trace of it. The punch would convince you it was all in your head. You'd believe it because it was better that way. The noir would tell us to go ahead and drink the punch, because it was only when you woke up during one of the emperor's organ fests that you might see your lung in his hands and die on the spot. What you don't know will keep you alive, the noir said. These days, though... He hardly ever took the samurai or the noir anymore. I figured it was because the samurai had his broom sword, and the noir, well, he was the noir. Me, the zombie, and the crocodile were his favorite test subjects now. The zombie especially, who aside from munching on human flesh all the live-long day, was a kind and trusting soul, clueless and completely oblivious to the emperor's evil ways. On this day we could tell the emperor was feeling not too hot because he immediately reached for his death-proof tonic from the cabinet, a careful concoction of crushed bone, the ground-up bits of our collective missing organs, minus the hearts, 
These he liked to keep as souvenirs. 12% lava, 20% dog pee, and all of it spiked with the tears of our deceased empress, who had been a much kinder ruler to us all before dying of a voodoo curse. Some say that after the empress passed, that's when the emperor went mad and began the slow transformation to diabolical superfiend. But myths abound. Hard to tell what the truth is or isn't sometimes. The way it happened is never the same thing as the true story. The Noir tried to explain to me once. When I asked him about the Empress, he told me she had been known for her red hair, but that her spirit was locked away in the lair now, and that was that. He flicked his paper cigarette, told me never to ask about her again. Rule. The Empress is history. Don't ask. I suspect if it hadn't been for the tonic, the Emperor might have been slain long ago. But with the unholy stuff swimming in his blood, he was invincible. There has to be a way to defeat him, the samurai often thought aloud. No, Theo would silence him. There is no way. The first thing the Emperor did after getting the tonic in his system that night was stumble into the living room and lure the zombie over to his lap. He was quick to coax her with the punch. Take your medicine, creepy, he told her, pouring a capful. As she downed it, he poured another. We watched him bob her on one knee, his teeth all pearly and fake. Sitting on the carpet, we could make out the rows of cavities that he hid so well from everyone else, those big, black, rotting stumps invisible from every other angle. After a moment, he dug around in his pocket and came out with a red rubber ball. He handed it off to the zombie, laughing his grating laugh, and she took the bait. Just like that. Easy as pie. They were heading out the door and the skies were growing a bruised purplish. We watched her skip all the way into the lair, where black rainbows grew and twisted out of the walls like razor-blade roses. Wonder what it'll take tonight, the crocodile said, twirling his tail made out of a bunch of cut-up and tied-together water hoses. Maybe a chunk of brain. Maybe a kneecap. Who the hell knows, the samurai said, sharpening his sword with a coat hanger. The noir perched on the counter, folding an ace of spades in half, a dark glint in his eye. Whatever he wants, he will never stop unless... We watched the noir form the shape of a pistol with his right hand and pulled the trigger. We imagined it bursting through the glass, splintering tin and burrowing itself a cozy home deep in the emperor's skull. That night, in the fuzzy lime twilight of the living room, as we lay sprawled like mutts on the floor, I could hear the Emperor creeping back inside. The glass door opened and shut with barely a sliding hush, and his black boots grazed by my head as he deposited the sleeping zombie on the corner of our yellowing mattress. You'd think a man as big as him would hammer the ground, but his walk was a clean gutter-cat prowl. No, it was the breathing that gave him away. Always the breathing the way he would suck in air like a too-narrow chimney choking on smoke before shooting it out with a crippled cough. I heard the lock on his door. Then, somewhere in the room, I heard the crocodile fart, the samurai shifting in his sleep to parry the phantom blast. The eerie green light from the VCR fell upon the noir, whose wide-awake eyes were locked onto the sputtering ceiling fan with its one blade missing. I watched him spread a ragged sheet over the zombie's feet, he noticed me, too, and I pretended to sleep. He raised up a bit, back to the wall, put his hand inside his trench coat. We all slept in our clothes because it was safer that way. 
he came back out with that imaginary revolver. This time he polished it with a rag that wasn't there, flicked it to one side, dug in his front pocket and brought out nothing. But it was like he was rolling that nothing around in his hand like loose bullets. Pushed six in the chamber. Click. Spun it once. Whoosh. Clapped it shut. Snap. Then he put it away. Tucked it back inside that strange oversized coat of his. Finally he curved his hat over his face and turned over to sleep. That's when I knew the Noir was doing cartwheels on the edge of crazy. That night I dreamed of the Empress. In it her bones kept bending back in impossible positions. She was bald and ugly, her lips an unnatural shade of blue, all chapped and peeling and terrible. Her eyes were gone, hollowed like olives with the pimento sucked out, and she kept calling to me from inside this giant birdcage. Out! Out! she kept muttering. I couldn't stand how bad she looked. She had been so beautiful in pictures I had seen. Now, reduced to this. Out! Out! The next morning, when I yanked my head from my pillow, I shook up the sweat, but I couldn't shake the dream. Out. I kept hearing it ping around in my brain. Out. Somewhere in that shed, the Empress was being held against her will. I knew it. The Noir said it himself. I couldn't stand it. Don't you know it's a horrible thing to feel trapped and powerless? It's a horrible thing to feel small. I began to hatch a plan to get her out of there. I knew the only way I would survive inside the lair was with death-proof tonic to keep the black rainbows at bay. So the next morning, I strategically positioned myself below the cabinet where the tonic was stored after the Emperor had already left for the day. I waited until the crocodile lurked for his breakfast. Soon enough, that bell rattled and we all took to higher ground. The crocodile slithered by, and as everyone watched him sniff the zombie's toes through her shredded socks, I opened the cabinet and tucked the tonic in my waistband. Now I knew what I was doing was punishable by torture. If the Emperor ever suspected someone of messing with his magical artifacts, we'd all pay the consequence. So as I took the bottle, I noted how it was positioned, label facing out, just left of the cracked mug with world's greatest daddy. I'd have to put it back exactly. No room for error. Not with the Emperor. When it was safe... Everyone hopped down and went about their usual routine. That is to say, the zombie hobbled over to the television, bumping along with poor Pogo Rex by his frayed ears. Crocodile yawned and scuttled beneath the table, going belly up and blowing snot bubbles through his leathery green snout. The samurai folded paper flowers in the center of the living room. As for the noir, he sat facing the window, looking out over the wild tangle that surrounded the lair where dead trees posed like petrified bouquets of snakes, and the long brown grass and tall, haunted weeds buzzed with bad omens. We all imagined freakish things in there, giant half-cricket half-dogs, mutated and spliced together by the Emperor just for fun. I knew I couldn't think too long about those kinds of things if I wanted to rescue the Empress. I locked myself in the bathroom and turned the faucet on full blast sat on the commode twisting the cap off of the funny square-shaped bottle, the stuff inside sloshing and glinting in the sickly yellow light. I poured some in a Dixie cup and tried to pretend it was medicine. I clamped my nose and swallowed quick. All I could taste was the twenty percent dog pee, 
enough to make my eyes sting and water. Over and over I refilled it. I nearly threw it back up into the bathtub, but I counted back from thirteen until it passed. Stumbling out into the hall, I felt dizzy. Denoir was the only one I was really worried about getting past, and I might have scrapped the whole plan if he hadn't been so busy with his eyes glued to the television screen, watching movies the Emperors would never let us watch in a hundred years. They all had titles like The Big Shot, or The Big Sleep, or The Big Kill. He was a sucker for anything with big in the title, I guess. I didn't understand the movies, but the noir, he spoke their language. He memorized all the lines. His hero was some guy named Humphrey, with a face rough enough to sharpen pencils. As I inched by, the noir perked up his head, but only slightly. I was busted. I was sure of it. But he didn't say anything then. Even when I could see myself in the TV and I could see that he was watching my reflection in the screen crossing the room. It wasn't until I was tugging on the sliding glass handle that he spoke up, without turning to face me, without even giving any clear indication that he was addressing me at all, he said, Don't be late. That's what he said. For what? I couldn't tell you, but I wasn't about to hang around to find out. Outside I watched the shed looking mean, with its zigzag rows of stripped paint like rusty rain-rotted teeth. The high weeds waved, hiding a hundred ugly somethings I hoped would stay hidden long enough for me to get by them. When rain started to slant down upon me, I could feel my shoes turning into cast-iron frying pans. I could just make out the top of the noir's head in the window, that feather of his shining through the dirt-caked window pane. It seemed like some magical charm to me, reminding me there were still places in the world where black rainbows didn't grow, where wild colors were still able to breathe brightly, untouchable and true. With that in mind, I counted backwards from thirteen and found myself at Doom's doorstep with the black bulb hissing just over me, an army of vines ready to tangle me up, but they sensed the tonic, shrank back. One thing I was figuring out about the tonic, it seemed to make you alert and sleepy all at the same time. The first thing I saw inside was that long table that the Emperor splayed his subjects out on, deep fingernail trails in the wood, row after row of dark stained cabinets. On the wall there was a board with rows of hooks that held various torture devices, surgical tools for cutting flesh and pounding bone, all brand new looking, shiny. You could tell he took pride in them. All around the room there were high shelves with assorted shoe boxes, paint buckets, empty jars, potato sacks, plant pots, half-cut milk cartons, and hollowed-out sleepy-eyed dolls with egg-shaped heads, some with nails sticking through their faces, jutting through their noses or twisting out of their cheekbones. I knew our hearts were up there somewhere. First I would concentrate on finding the Empress, though. I crawled up on a table to get a better look, but I was still feeling the effects of the tonic, and it was becoming tougher to focus. It dawned on me that I could have been tricked, because what I was now feeling felt a lot like the black rainbow punch, and if that was the case, I knew I would soon slip away and be out all afternoon, maybe forever. The Emperor would find me there on the table passed out, and he wouldn't just take a piece then, he'd take the whole thing. He'd be greedy. So naturally, when I went wobbly and fell from the table landing hard on my kneecap, I was sick with shame. I had tried to use the Emperor's own medicine against him, but I should have known he was too clever for that. Real monsters always are. Rule. You can't cheat the game, even when it cheats you.
I might have been bleeding, but I couldn't tell. The only thing I could do was drag myself to the nearest cabinet, feel my way inside before blacking out. If I was going to be found there, I hoped I would stay asleep through it all. When I came to, after what felt like only a couple of seconds, I found I was still holed up inside the cabinet. My bottom was numb, and I had a pretty bad headache pinching the right side of my brain. I poked my head out to take a look and saw that it was growing dark through a window. Saw clouds like black balls of fur scuttling, oozing scab-like across the sky, dusk spreading slow over the thorny trees, like a star-stained blanket. Then I could hear the mutant mutt crickets chirping through the walls, grating their entrails like violin strings, declaring the black rainbow hour begun. It was too late. My first instinct was to spill out and head for the house on two tingly beanpole legs, and I was about ready to elbow the flap and make a break for it when I heard the shed door break first. Then, the hacking cough. I pulled the cabinet door closed. In walked two bodies, I think, the obvious presence and another, softer one. I heard something like a thump of dead weight, zipper zipping, buttons snapping, hands rubbing together like sandpaper hard at work. I tried to spy through the crack, trying so hard not to breathe. I had to wrap my arms around my mouth. All I could see was the Emperor towering over the table through a thin slit, caressing hair or something, sharpening blades or cleaning a surgical torture apparatus. It was then that I saw it, high on a shelf above the Emperor's silver head of hair, a voodoo doll with two X's for eyes, perfect stitch mouth, red mangy mane of hair like a waterfall on fire. The moment I saw it, I knew it had to be her. In my mind, I imagined being able to reach her and tuck her away in my pocket along with my brothers and sister, stealing us off to a bright city so deep with alleys, so crowded with people, the black rainbows would never find us. We could be safe in a place like that, happily lost and never alone among a sea of strangers. I guess I imagined too hard, though, because of my dream-reaching, I lost my balance and spilled out of the cabinet in full view of the Emperor. Rule. Stay safe inside your head. He stopped what he was doing, waiting for me to stand up. I shouldn't have, but I did. As if I had emerged to a long, dark tunnel, braved the warm comfort of that darkness for so long only to smash into a blue wall of even more terrifying daylight, I saw everything upon the table. I had to fall right back down. In the pit of my stomach, I could feel it wasn't natural. The tiny body splayed on the table like that, like a living doll. The living doll spread out and opened on the table like a clockwork plaything, and the emperor with his hands upon it all, making use of it, turning those cogs, moving and contorting the mechanical parts for his own perverse amusement. My baby sister, fast asleep. Fast asleep, the one thing I found peace in. Rule. The way it happened is never the same thing as the true story. Black rainbows flitted about the room now, and I felt myself losing it. The tears came in a continuous rush. My stomach collapsed, and a great wave of shame and fright flowed through me, like burning and cold all at once. Dear boy, the emperor addressed me, standing over me as I lay crumpled and sobbing at his ankles. He ran his forked tongue twice over his gums. Dear, dear boy. Whistling, he meandered over to the corner, picked out a dull-looking hacksaw. He slung it aside, 
gripping a hammer before finally deciding on a simple screwdriver instead. This'll work, don't you think? He stood over me again, smiling, his cavities fully exposed. Come here, boy. Let's see what makes you tick. And I don't know where he came from, but suddenly the noir was there with us, standing at the door, his hands in the front of his coat pocket, curses wisps crawling up from the tip of his cigarette. Say, Buster, we've got some business to settle, he said, calling out the Emperor. I'm here to collect. The Emperor turned to face him. Through his knees I could see the noir who flung me a wink before spitting out his cigarette. One thousand points for helping me slay the Emperor, kid, the noir said, and then he aimed his index finger point-blank at the Emperor, who began to laugh. The room flashed white, and then all that was left was a miniature fog of smoke hanging in the air. The Emperor laid out beside me on the concrete, a hole the size of a grape in his forehead gushing black blood. The next thing I remember is being back inside the house where the crocodile was cheering jubilantly, proclaiming to all the kingdom, The Emperor is dead! The Emperor is dead! Whatever power he had held over us had fallen away. I knew it, but still something was terribly wrong. The Noir stood at the sink, frantically emptying out the death-proof tonic that I had left in the bathtub. The death-proof tonic that the Emperor had not been able to find that afternoon, which had left him temporarily vulnerable. The Noir peeked out through the chip blinds, then spoke. You did good, kid, but they'll come for you now. They'll come for you to try to get to her, but they'll never get her, will they? He slapped me on the back and tossed the zombie's ketchup locks. And something about the way he did let me know it would be the last time I would ever see him. Let me know that even though my sister and I were free, that freedom didn't extend to my brothers. Then, when he plucked a feather from his hat and put it in my hand, wrapped my fingers around it for me, I knew it was true. He's looking at you, kid, he said, holding the front door open for me and the zombie to escape. The samurai and the crocodile watched on, with their eyes exchanging the terms of a silent pact that I knew would never be broken between us. I could hear the dreamy murmur of sirens in the distance, long red and blue shrieks, wailing, howling night into a shredded song of youth. I counted back from thirteen, grabbed the zombie, for the first time in our lives we were free. Hold my hand, I said, as she began to bawl. Don't look back. Then we were off, winding through birdbath lawns, navigating by panic. Only once did I stop to tie her shoe and stab the feather behind her ear, which seemed to calm her some. I could feel my big frying pan feet begging me to turn around, to find a good place to hide, to sprout wings and sail the marbled sky. I was afraid because I understood everything now. I knew all the things we weren't supposed to know. I could feel the hollow space inside where my heart had once been, ripping itself wider and wider. And I could see where downtown started and the old neighborhood ended, where the gravelly pavement became slick and oily, and the swaying magnolias turned into stark, soulless streetlights, where the crowns of the trees became the wide rims of soot-belching smokestacks. There was a sick, empty feeling crawling up my throat, scabs everywhere, in the bushes, the trees, the sidewalks, the skin of my hand trembling in my pocket. In short, black rainbows lurked around every corner. But then I remembered something my brother once said, the day before he died and became someone else. If you can just make life into a game, you can make it up as you go, and they can't touch you. It won't matter whether you win or lose then, because even if you lose, 
You win. I hesitated just long enough to make out a bird. Or was it a bat? Diving upward into a shimmer-white pool of sky. On a rooftop, a storm-beaten weather vane slung itself around, its brass finger pointing west, toward a city steeped in neon blur, buzzing like an electric orchard. Finally, I understood what the game was for, and who. I watched moonlight chase its way along the razor's edge of the feather behind Amelia's ear. Our very own black rainbow ward, keeping the colors true. Rule. The only way to win the game is to never stop playing it. One hundred points for not crying, I heard myself say to Amelia, as we zagged through an alley, leaving our old lives behind and making up new ones along the way. I knew I was a terrible liar. I hoped I would be as good at fighting monsters as the noir had been. And call me the cowboy. The enchanted city lay before us in the distance, floating in a mist of melancholy dream. See what I mean? Brilliant, but disturbing. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just to lift the mood a little bit, I thought I'd put in a flash fiction piece called Cloud Eating by Trisha Glock. Trisha hides behind her writing like a film star hiding behind the camera. It should work, but it doesn't. She has a family and pets, but doesn't think that they're relevant here. She hopes you enjoy the story. It's read for you by none other than yours truly. And of course, you know my history, so I don't have to tell you. Enjoy. Cloud Eating by Trisha Glock The god of the jackals and the god of the hyenas were walking through the savannah one evening as the sky was orange and umber and the wind stroked their fur with loving fingers. Together they were seeing what there was to see. It is said the jackal looked at hyena and touched her nose when from behind them a white cloud rose billowing and roiling. Jackal descended upon it, licking his lips and slavering, and ate of the cloud as if it were fat. When he had eaten all that he could, he saw that the cloud had risen too far to step off safely. He wanted to come down, so he called to Hyena. My sister, as I am going to divide with thee this cloud so fat and delicious, catch me well. So... She stood beneath the cloud, solid and sure, and caught him and broke his fall. Then he turned around, presenting his back for her to climb upon it. Then she also leapt up to the billowing whiteness and ate there of the rich, nourishing fluff, high up on the top of the cloud. When Hyena was satisfied, she ate yet more of the deliciousness, so that her stomach bulged obscenely. Jackal, far below on the ground, called up to her, Hyena, my friend, the more you eat, the higher the cloud rises. You must descend. She looked down and saw that he was right. She said, My greyish brother, I must come down. Now catch me well, for the ground is dry and hard as rock. Jackal, 
the rogue with a smiling face, said to his friend, My sister, I shall catch thee well, come therefore down. He held up his head, beckoning, and she came down from the cloud. When she came near, Jackal saw how very swollen was her belly with the fat of the cloud, and so he cried out, limping and jumping to one side, My sister, do not take it ill. Oh me, oh me, a thorn has pricked me in my tenderest footpad and sticks in me, causing blood. Thus fell Hyena down from the white cloud above, and was sadly hurt. Since that day, it is said that Hyena's hind feet have been shorter and smaller than the front ones, and her belly remains round and plump, and Jackal runs from her when she comes near. So that's it. Loyal fans and first-time listeners alike, Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you next week. Don't forget, tune in, sit down, put your feet up, pour that all-important drink, and enjoy the fantasy on your computer. See you next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.